So let's just have a word of prayer now, and then we'll read the Word of God, and we'll come to the Lord's message. Let's bow together in prayer. Eternal God and loving Father, we bow in Thy presence, we wait at Thy feet. We rejoice, O Lord, that Thou hast spared us to the evening of this day, Thy day. We thank Thee for the Word this morning that blessed our hearts, and we pray, O Lord, that we might live in the enjoyment and in the meaning of that great verse, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Lord, I need Thy strength tonight. Thank Thee for the Holy Spirit who brings home to the soul of the believer strength, grace, yea, every blessing that Christ has purchased for us. May we know that help tonight that is required in preaching, may there be help given to the hearer. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt close us in with Thee. We commit our way to Thee. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt watch over our land, over our people on this stormy night, and that Thou wilt, Lord, even cause the winds to subside when the forecast is calling for or uh, making known that there will be strong winds. Lord, we pray that Thou wilt just overrule, and Thou wilt keep... keep and give safety to all, even tonight as we travel home afterwards. We look to Thee, O Lord, we pray for the wind of heaven, the Holy Ghost. We pray for His power, for His mighty presence, for that grace that He brings home to hearts. Lord, remember sinners in this gathering. We pray that Thou wilt deal with them, that the Word tonight will be with power, that they will feel its impact, and they will know the touch of God upon them, in converting power. Lord, come down, we pray. Shut us in with Thee, and bless us now as we continue at Thy feet. For we ask all of this in Jesus' name, and for His sake, and for His eternal glory. Amen and amen. We're turning tonight to Hebrews chapter 12. We had the earlier reading from Genesis 25, in which there was a focus on Jacob and Esau upon the family setting there, and now we're going to read some verses that relate to Esau. And so turn to Genesis, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll read from the verse number 9 down to verse 17. Hebrews 12, the verse 9 through to verse number 17. Let us hear the Word of God. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness." Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently 
lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And we know that God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. In many, many ways, the story of Esau is one of deepest sadness, an observation that is verified by what we read in this passage in Hebrews chapter 12. Esau is mentioned on three occasions in the New Testament, and this is the final reference to him. But we cannot read these words except with sorrow, because they indicate that Esau left this world in a state of spiritual hopelessness. He perished eternally, it certainly seems, under the wrath of God because of his sin. Esau was the elder of the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac married Rebekah when he was 40 years old. He had no offspring until he reached the age of 60, and then the twin sons were born. The younger of the two was Jacob, and it was from Jacob, of course, that God's promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, eventually came. That means that both Jacob and Esau, or Esau and Jacob to take them with regard to the order in which they were born, came into a family line that was greatly blessed of God. In that era, Isaac's household was God's church on this earth. In that home, there were praying parents, as the Word of God reveals. And the Lord's purposes, it was a home where redemptive truth was known and undoubtedly explained and taught to its members, even to these two boys, Esau and Jacob. Those two boys were therefore highly privileged in terms of knowing the truth that God was revealing at that time concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. It is very clear from the Word of God that Jacob benefited in his soul from all that he was taught. While he was a man with many unsavory features to his character in earlier life, yet he could say later on in old age, in Genesis 48 where it's recorded, that the angel had redeemed him. And the reference there, of course, is to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jacob was a redeemed man, a saved man, a man who knew God, a man who came into the blessings of the gospel that he had been taught, even as a boy. But how different is the story of Esau? Nowhere in the Old Testament is there even a glimmer of light or hope in relation to him. The historical narrative that we have in the book of Genesis concerning Esau is very dark. It is very foreboding. 
Later scriptures show his descendants, the Edomites, as a race of people who were enemies of God, who were enemies of his people, who were enemies of God's grace. Ultimately, in the little book of Obadiah, we read of these descendants of Esau the Edomites being completely destroyed for their sins. That line of people, therefore, were eventually totally wiped out because of the way in which they had gone in their rejection of God and in the rejection of the gospel and the things of God. In this passage here in Hebrews 12, in which we read of Esau for the final time, Paul warns us against personal departure from God, from Christ, and from the gospel. The whole section of Scripture that I've read with you tonight is addressed to a particular class of people. They are those who are associated with the truth of God. They are people who enjoy spiritual privileges. They hear God's Word. They are familiar with the gospel. They sit under faithful preaching. They are objects of concern and prayer and solemn instruction. And yet they eventually perish, just as Esau did. Therefore, Esau's tragic uh, spiritual end is employed here by Paul in the last couple of verses that I read with you to illustrate the warning that Paul is giving down through these verses. It is in that sense that Esau is is under awful scrutiny by the Holy Spirit of God, as Paul writes. In our text, verse 16 and verse 17, light is thrown on this man's soul in his lifetime and upon his awful end and his more awful eternity. What a warning is found in these verses. In this text, the Holy Spirit presents a warning to sinners who are familiar with the things of God. That's the point. Familiar with the things of God, as Esau was, because undoubtedly he was. And I've related to you why he was familiar with the things of God. And so are you, very familiar, many of you, with the gospel, with the message of Christ, with God's grace, with all that it encompasses, with all that it does, all that the Holy Spirit performs in people's lives. And that great gospel message held out to you, set before you, presented to you, over and over and over again. And yet, my dear friend, you are in danger of perishing, as Esau perished. And I want to draw your attention, therefore, to three matters that are highlighted by the Lord that must be given the most solemn attention by you as a congregation tonight, and especially by those in this congregation and people online as well, who are in danger of losing their souls. That's the awful reality that arises from what we read there In verse 16 and verse 17, look at the words once more as I read them to you. It speaks of Esau in verse 16. It says he was a profane profane person 
who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Notice those words. He was rejected. He found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. I notice here, first of all, Esau's crime. I call it that because he committed a moral and a spiritual crime against God. It's revealed in verse 16. Esau, for one morsel of meat, sold his birthright. That's a specific transgression or sin or crime against God with which Esau is charged in the Scriptures before us. And because of that crime, he perished and he was lost forever. I, I notice right away, and I draw it to your attention, that it is because of sin that men are lost. We must underline that. We must make that absolutely clear. To be lost is the judgment of God. To be lost, to perish, is to come under divine wrath. But my dear friend, God never brings any man down to hell. No sinner is ever lost but for that person's sin. That's the teaching of the Bible. God is the judge of all. And as such, He condemns the unrepentant. And He banishes them at last to eternal hell, but always for their sin. Divine judgment upon those who perish is always conditioned or based upon their sin. That's the clear teaching of the Bible from end to end. And we must never depart from that. I would not be faithful to God or to you if I said otherwise tonight, that if you perish, it will be because of your sin. Esau, therefore, was lost because of sin. All Scripture includes, including this text, in which Esau is in view, it is all Scripture is in view, makes that point very, very clear, and it must be underlined. Remember, my friend, what the Bible says. Be sure your sin will find you out. You cannot live without God and without Christ and continue in sin and even entertain the idea, the foolish, vain idea, that somehow, somehow or other you will escape the results, the consequences of your sin. The essence of Esau's crime or sin is brought before us. It tells us that he sold his birthright. Further light is thrown on that in Genesis 25, where we're told by the Holy Spirit that he despised his birthright. That's the same virtually as we have here. He sold his birthright, but the word despised is there, and that certainly brings out the enormity and the essence of this man's sin. Esau was guilty of treating lightly and frivolously something that was of great value. He placed no value or merit on his birthright. He despised it. He treated it with scorn. And for that reason, the Word of God calls him here a profane person. The word profane basically means that which is unholy. 
He was an unholy, he was an ungodly man. He had a soul that had no esteem whatsoever for things that were holy, for things that were godly. Oh, think about his background again. Think about all that he was taught in that home. Isaac and Rebekah, praying parents, godly parents, who could wrestle with God. Even it was through wrestling with God that Esau and Jacob were born into the world because Rebekah was barren. And for those 20 years, there was no sign of a child And then God answered prayer, and these two boys were born. And that means that in their upbringing, they would have been told that story by their parents, God heard our prayers, and you come into the world. And in that very context of things, they'd have been taught the ways of God, the truths of God, as I've already said, and yet here's a man who's described and classified in Scripture as being profane. He treated with contempt that which was sacred, namely his birthright. Now that birthright to which reference is made here, and also in Genesis 25, has to do with the privileges belonging to the firstborn son. Those privileges, for example, were the special blessing of the Father, a double portion of His goods, dominion over His brethren, and more than anything else, the right to function as the spiritual leader in the family. And that's the most important aspect of what the birthright held and what the birthright offered to the firstborn, to be the spiritual leader in the family, which means that Esau would have been taught that and would have known that, that for him to be the firstborn truly, he needed to know God. He needed to know God's will. He needed to know the God of glory, the God of grace, and live for him and teach the things of God to the next generation. That's what the birthright was all about. And you see, the birthright therefore had a clear gospel significance. Ultimately, the birthright pointed to the place of Christ as the only begotten Son of God. The birthright typified the portion also that sinners are given when they are taken by God as His children and are adopted into a spiritual family. All of that also was encapsulated in the birthright and what it meant. It signified the entitlement of the Lord's people to a heavenly inheritance. All of those details were found within the parameters of what the birthright actually was. And all of that Esau despised. He placed no value on sacred things. He placed no value upon God, His covenant of grace, the revelation of Christ the Redeemer, all that God does for souls in saving them. He placed no value in that. And in that light, He stands as a reminder of multitudes who commit the very same thing, who have no thought of or placed no value upon those things that are sacred. Here's a man who preferred the things of the flesh over the blessing of God. He sold his birthright. And he sold it, we're told, for a mess of pottage 
in Genesis, where you read of that pottage that was made and that, that Esau wanted and for which he sold his birthright, it's a simple reference to a pot of stew. That's what it means, literally and in the original language. Therefore, he put the cravings of the flesh, the body, the outer man, above the need of his soul, above that which would live forever. The body would perish. The body would die eventually. I know that people need to eat. But when a man will sell all that the birthright meant and signified in order to satisfy, yes, though he was hungry, his body, it shows you just how lightly Esau regarded the things of God. And my dear friend, it is the very same sin that multitudes are committing today for something that's fleshly and carnal and has no value at the end of the day, really. They will sell their birthright. Oh, what a birthright you may have had as you sit in this house tonight. Uh, maybe godly parents, a godly background, knowing the truth, understanding the gospel. But down through your lifetime until right now, you have, you have been willing to sell it to satisfy the flesh and the things of the flesh over the blessing of God. Esau also preferred temporal relief to an eternal inheritance. Note those terms. The pot of stew would only satisfy him for a while, and then he'd need another pot of stew or whatever. And for that, he sold his birthright when that birthright signified an eternal inheritance, an eternal satisfaction. And so there is the essence of this man's sin or this man's crime. He sold his birthright. And the enormity of that sin, as well as the essence of it, is brought out in these words here in, in, in Hebrews 12 and verse 16. Those words in that closing part of verse 16. Who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. There's the enormity of this man's sin or crime. Because for one little morsel of meat, compared with what he threw away, what he sold, what he gave up, what an enormous sin this man committed. And you see, multitudes again are doing that, aren't they? For some paltry earthly pleasure, for a brief time of, of a, a sinful pursuit, for the meager fulfillment of some kind of sensual lust deep within the soul, multitudes will sell themselves and will give up all that the gospel is and throw it away. Ah, my friend, you have done that for years. You are a person who, who essentially loves the things of the world. And for that morsel of pleasure or carnal activity, or whatever it might be, you would throw away everything that God offers you in the gospel of His Son. And I tell you tonight, there's no greater sin. Because you are despising and you are trampling underfoot the riches of Christ, the gospel with all its value, 
all the benefits of Christ's redemptive work that are designed to meet the need of the soul. Think of the needs of your soul. Your need to be forgiven. Your need to be justified before God. Your need to be washed and cleansed from the impurity and the corruption of your heart and your life. The need to have a place in God's family and be adopted by the Spirit into the company of the redeemed. The need to find a way to heaven. You need all that. You must seek for all that. You must search for that with all your heart. But all the while, down through your years until now, you have been despising all that and rejecting all that and throwing it away for some paltry, meaningless, valueless thing called sin. Whatever that sin might be. Is that not what Judas did? We're told that Judas cried out at the end of the things when he had betrayed the Lord. He cried out, I have betrayed innocent blood. What awful words. He betrayed innocent blood. He betrayed the Son of God who was without sin, who was pure and holy impeccably so. Judas sold Christ. He sold his birthright. He threw away all that was precious when he took the 30 pieces of silver. And when he came to the end of it all, the Bible says he he went to his own place. Acts 1. Where? Where did he go? His own place? He went, my friend, to that hell where he now is, where he ever will be, lost forever under the wrath of God, under the damnation of God. He threw away his soul because of his sin. Remember the Lord's words, my friend. What shall it profit a man? if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Sinners in this gathering this evening pay heed to Esau's crime. The essence of it, he sold his birthright. That which signifies everything that's in Christ. The enormity of it for a mere morsel of meat. Young person, are you setting out on that kind of a path in life? Are you deceived into thinking that there is something out there that's worth having, but you know that in order to have it, you've got to reject the Lord, you've got to reject the Bible, you've got to reject holiness and godliness and those things that are eternal. You You can't have your sin and have those things too. You know that much. You can't serve God and mammon. You've learned that. You've been taught that. You can't hold on to your sin and the ways of the world and then expect to go to heaven at the end of the day. Oh, you know full well it just will not be. But all the while, while you know that, that you can't have the world and of Christ both, still you hold on to the world and you'll sell your soul over the head of that which you feel will satisfy you just as Esau did, only to discover 
the bitter taste and the bitter end that will come. There's also here Esau's condemnation. We come into verse 17 in this chapter. Look at his crime in 16. Now verse 17, and there's a condemnation here that's really spelled out in a very, very graphic way. It says, For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. This, in the historical context, takes us into Genesis 27, to another phase of Esau's life. And so I just say that quickly in passing. But in the in simple but most solemn terms, what we find here in these words is there was no blessing for Esau. The scene in Genesis 27 is of old Isaac sitting down to deliver a blessing. And we know the story there. I'm not going into that tonight for time's sake. But the point is that there came a moment when Esau found himself condemned and rejected when he would have inherited the blessing. He was rejected. Now that word reject is a very strong word and a very, very important word. It signifies to reject as the result of examination and disapproval. You see, Esau was guilty of rejecting the birthright. This is the point. In chapter 25, he rejected the birthright. In chapter 27 of Genesis, he then, he then was rejected. That's it. Reject the things of God, and there comes a time when you will be rejected when you will discover that you have forfeited the blessing that really matters and that really counts, the blessings of God, the blessings of the things of God. You'll come to a point, my friend, when that awful condemnation will fall and you'll find yourself being rejected, not by men, but by God. Not in time, but at death and in eternity. You'll find yourself being rejected and God will turn away from you and turn His back on you and there'll be no hope for you forever. You see, there always is a consequence for sin. Notice in verse 17, the word afterward. It says, ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, when he came to Isaac and wanted the blessing, he was rejected. You see, dear friend, there always is an afterward. That's a very important word too. Afterward. Well, you see, he didn't think about it at the time. In chapter 25, when he desperately wanted that mess of pottage and for it sold his birthright, he didn't think about the consequences. He did not think about the condemnation that would come. He didn't think about the awful price that he was paying there and then. And yet the afterward arrived. There always is an afterward sinner. There's a day of reckoning. There's a day when things will catch up with impenitent men. That day is coming. The afterward is bearing down upon you. It will surely, it will certainly come. There is some times an afterward in this life. The Bible teaches that. That some men's sins bring God's judgment on them at a point when they're not even expecting it. 
Word of God makes it absolutely clear. There's an afterward at death then. Oh, what an afterward there is then. And the most graphic passage that describes that and unfolds that to us is Luke 16. Is there not there the story, the account of the afterward for the rich man? Oh, there was an afterward for Lazarus. Lazarus loved God and God loved Lazarus. And though Lazarus had nothing in this life in terms of material, financial, physical things to comfort him even, to make his life a kind of different situation that was when you read about him there in Luke 16. He had none of that. But the thing that he had was what was everlasting. God took him to glory. But there was an afterward for the rich man. He lived in luxury. He pampered himself. He was selfish. He was completely thoughtless with regard to Lazarus lying at that gate. The dogs had more regard for Lazarus than the rich man had. Totally immersed in himself. Never thinking about anybody else, only him. His pleasures, his luxuries, faring sumptuously every day, that's a description of multitudes, isn't it? But there's an afterward. There comes a moment when condemnation descends. And you see it in Luke 16. The rich man also died and was buried and in hell. And in hell. There's the afterward. Or you think as well about what it says in Revelation 20. In that great chapter that describes toward its close the judgment day and what will happen and whosoever is not found written in the book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire. My friend, there's always a consequence for sin. There is the condemnation that will come and that will fall. In his sinful folly, Esau had crossed a line. He was rejected. He had gone too far in his sin. There was no blessing for him. There was no mercy for him. The Bible warns us of that very issue. Crossing a line beyond which there is no hope. So that's awful. Gives me no pleasure to say that to you. I think of Cain. And of Cain we read in Genesis 4. And I want to bring to you the marginal reading of a certain verse. And the marginal reading is this. My iniquity is greater than that it may be forgiven. That man who murdered his brother, that man who was guilty of slaying the man of God to get his own way because he hated the gospel and he despised God and he sold himself over to evil and he paid an awful price and he had to cry out, My iniquity is greater than that it may be forgiven. There was no forgiveness for Cain. There was no mercy for Cain. He crossed the line. Jesus Christ speaks of this in John 8. 
He says, if ye believe not that I am he, that is, his sinners will not surrender to him as the Son of God and the Savior of men, if they will not believe that, that they will not yield to that. Then he says this, ye shall die in your sins. Do you see it, friend? You do cross lines in this life. There comes a moment when you cross a line and there's no hope for you, sinner. No hope ever again. Oh, the awfulness of that. If ye believe not that I am he, that is, that I am the true Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the Redeemer of the ungodly, if you don't believe that, Christ says ye shall die in your sins. Beyond hope. Condemned forever. That brings me to Esau's calamity. Look at those words. It says, he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. I don't want to get into that in any great depth, but the marginal reading, with regard to the words, he found no place of repentance. If you've got a marginal Bible, you will see the marginal reading. It reads this way, he found no way to change his mind. Now the question is, whose mind? And the answer is, Isaac's mind. That's who is in view there. Esau came, Esau wept, but old Isaac would not change his mind. Whenever Esau came and sat before his father, and with bitter tears he cried out for a blessing. Though he went through all that, Isaac's mind was made up. He could not go back. He could not alter what had been done. So what were, uh, and by the way, where it says he found no way to change his mind, that means that the repentance here in view, it has nothing to do with Esau. That's what I want you to get a hold of. Esau didn't come before Isaac to repent of his original sin of selling his birthright. No, it was Isaac who wouldn't repent and change his mind of what had been already established by the result of Esau selling his birthright. That's the meaning of these words. And therefore, Esau's sorrow that's in view here was not the sorrow of true repentance. It, was, it did not proceed from the anguish of having sinned so grievously against God. He simply wept tears of self-pity. He's just like Judas. Judas came before the priests, and Judas supposedly repented, but it was self-pity. It was self-sorrow. He was sorry about his situation and what he had done in the sense of selling the birthright or selling the Lord, but there was no real repentance in either Judas or in Esau. And my friend, there is the sorrow and the weeping and the wailing that you read about regarding those who will go to hell. You read about weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And people very foolishly think that means that folk who are lost in hell 
would love to be saved, would desire to escape from where they are. Yes, they might want out of hell, but there's no repentance. The weeping and the wailing, the gnashing of teeth, is a demonstration throughout eternity of the continued hatred for God that there is in the heart of the sinner in hell. You see, there's no regeneration in hell. There's no change of mind in hell. There's no repentance from sin in hell. Oh yes, they, they feel and they know where they are. And they are therefore filled with the pains and the pangs of hell. But all the while, they're weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth against God. Because they're not repentant. And they never will be. And to teach otherwise is nonsense. They're lost. And Esau, as he sat before Isaac, and he found that the old man of God would not repent of his decision, that the blessing would be Jacob's and not Esau's. Therefore, Esau was at a point where the greatest calamity that could ever befall anybody had fallen on him. Now, do you understand why I said, why I said at the opening of this message, there's no more sad story in the Bible, perhaps, but I feel no more sad story than the story of Esau. Starting out with all those privileges, in that godly home, with all those benefits. And here's the end of the story. No hope for him. In the light of Esau's sin, sorrow, sentence, his crime, his condemnation, his calamity, what should you do? Well, there's one simple answer. You should rise up this very Sabbath night and flee from your sin to Jesus Christ. Whatever that takes, I mean whatever the cost may be that you have to count and pay to get away from your sin and away from the world and away from the wrong company and away from all the carnal pursuits that you follow through, to get away from all that, my friend, do not stop. Do not hesitate. Flee for your life. Flee from the wrath to come. Get to Jesus Christ immediately. Get to the place of safety before you're lost forever. Before Esau's calamity becomes your calamity. He crossed the line. And that was it. And though he lived on for a while, he was rejected. It says that. He was rejected. Sinner, what an awful end. And yet, there's a Savior, a Savior for sinners who has died, who has risen, 
who is able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him. Will you come? Will you come tonight? You may have been thinking deep and long about these things, and that's okay in its own place, but there comes a time for action. There comes a time to take a step. There comes a time when you need to get to Christ. You're not guaranteed any time down the road. It's tonight. Young person, maybe even little child, what about you? Where are you? How is it with your soul? Oh, I trust you're not showing the signs that developed in Esau's early life. But I trust and pray that tonight there may be evidences that you're ready to come to the Lord, you're ready to seek the Savior, you're ready to trust Christ, you're ready to turn from your sin and begin to walk with God. If so, let your cry go up from your heart even now for God's mercy, for God to save you, to forgive you, to cleanse you, to deliver you. If you wish to speak to me or Mr. Stewart, we're here, you know that. We say that not as some kind of a tag-on, but to make it absolutely clear that we are your servants for Christ's sake. It will be our joy to help you get to Jesus Christ and find Him as your Savior and your Redeemer. Even though For some here, the day may be late, and the eleventh hour may be very close, and maybe you're past the eleventh hour, and you know what I mean by that. And that eleventh hour can come for young or old. Therefore, there's no time to waste. It is time to seek the Lord to come and trust Him. Let us bow in prayer as we come to the close of this meeting this time around the Word. May God the Holy Spirit take His Word and use it. Speak to us when we are at the door there. Just don't get out again, as it were, away home to try to forget about these things. No. Come to the Savior. Come tonight. Seek Him while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. Lord, give sinners grace. Prevent them, Lord, from hastening on in their sin. May they come tonight drawn with the cords of love, with the bands of hope, to rest in the Son of God, to trust in the Christ of Calvary. Hear prayer, we pray of Thee. We leave all at Thy feet. May Thy name be glorified. May Christ be exalted. May there be a lasting work done. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of Your people tonight and forevermore. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.